Amen? Lord bless them. Lord bless their teachers as well. Well, praise the Lord. It's good to see you this morning. Our first fall Sunday morning, isn't it? It's awesome. It's going to be a great, great fall. Nice and, and, and cold and, you know, hopefully winter will stay off, but we're going to enjoy it. Praise God. Well, we're continuing on in Hebrews. Our seasonal see-to-it priorities. That, that Paul, which they don't say Paul is the author of the book of Hebrews, but I think he is. Um, and he continues to give us some things that we've been unpacking these last so many weeks. We're coming back to it. I want to ask you a question, though, as we set and we get ready for this message. What of great value have you ever given up or exchanged? To satisfy a temporary or momentary appetite or need. Think about that. That may not bring back great memories for you. Although at the same time you may learn a great lesson. What of great value have you ever given up to satisfy a temporary or a momentary appetite or need? Now this morning we know some things and this is true about us as human beings. We all have appetites, say amen. We all have needs, say amen. We do. We're human beings. That's the way it is. So we all have appetites. We all have needs. But there's a difference between an appetite and a need. You understand that, don't you? There's a difference. For instance, hunger and thirst, that's a biological need to eat and drink. It is. It's hunger is a physiological uh, thing that occurs within us as our, our biology changes throughout our body and it signals that we have a need to eat so we can maintain healthy body, maintain healthy function so that we can, we can have energy levels up. So there is a real need to eat and drink. But an appetite, on the other hand, that's simply a desire to eat. It's a desire to drink. It's created by our environment. It's created by our thoughts and our opportunities. That's what an appetite is. It's a desire that's created by environment, thought, and opportunities. So appetites can, can be a result of hunger. Because I'm really hungry and I have a biological need, I could have an appetite for certain things, right? So that's true. But often, it's caused and it's anchored in our thoughts. It's anchored in our emotions. It's anchored in our environmental conditions. You buy that? Yeah, I hope you do, because that's kind of the prevailing wisdom and it's the reality of appetites and how they're different from needs. So for instance, I go downtown, like you go downtown sometime, park my car, I go, walk way too far sometimes, and find a restaurant I love. Boy, I eat, and I enjoy it. I'm hungry. It's dinner time. I'm hungry. Man, I get full. All my needs are met. I get done, <coughs> and I'm thankful for the short walk, well, the long walk, back to my car. But as I'm walking to my car, I happen to go by, what is that place called downtown again that... Well, no, I remember that. Because that's where I go by. I go by Insomni Cookies. Have you been to Insomni Cookies yet? How many people have been there? It's downtown. 
Okay, it, it's a terrible place. I'm full. I'm full. I walk and stroll by this place, and all of a sudden, the smells allure me. My favorite cookies are being baked. They're warm. They're good. Oatmeal, walnut, raisin cookies. Somebody say amen to that. Huh? I know some people hate it because of the raisin. You don't want it. Okay, take the raisins out. What about salted caramel? What about peanut butter chips? Yes. What about double chocolate junk? Yeah. Oh my gosh. The smell and the thought of these warm cookies with milk or hot coffee. I don't know what you like better, but they're both good with cookies, right? They fan your desire. They fan mine. They stir your appetite. Even though you are full to the brim from dinner, you've been stuffed. You have no more room. But your appetite is tempted. It's stirred. You want to seize the moment. You do. You want to spend an ungodly amount of money, four bucks, for a cookie. You want to do that. And it's for a cookie that you could really, some of us can make better at home and bigger at home. But the smells and the thoughts tantalize your thoughts. They fill your nose with hopeful fulfillment. Man, they caress your mind. Don't they? with a satisfying, warm hug. <laughs> Who knew that cookies could be so sensual, right? <laughs> it's kind of weird. It is. But it's true. You have an appetite. I'm here to tell you something this morning. God knows we all have needs. We do. We have a need for air, water, food, comfort. We have a need for safety, peace, sleep, rest, physical touch, intimacy, not just sexual, but sexual as well, but intimacy, knowing somebody deeply. Love. We have a need for love. We have a lot of needs. And he promises as we trust him, he will meet those needs because he made us with those needs. And he also knows, <coughs> excuse me, that we all have appetites. He knows what they are. We all have desires. And he even wants to meet some of those appetites and desires too. And yet he also knows that not all of our appetites and not all of our desires are healthy. They're not good for us. They're not holy. They're not best for us, and they're not best for other people. And he knows that because those appetites have been formed by our environment, by our thoughts, by our opportunities, and oftentimes by our sin. Those appetites have been fed. And so he knows that he's got to deal with them, and we have to learn to deal with them too. In the opening verses of Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, remember that was where we started with this passage. The apostle, he gave this kind of concise vision for our lives on how we were to live life and move forward with God. And if you were to go back to that chapter and read those first verses, you can see that. It, it just says, therefore, since we are surrounded by a great crowd of witnesses, this is how we should then live. And because we can fix our eyes on Jesus, and because Jesus has set out a course of blessing and salvation for us, we can follow it, and we are to follow it. We can live the life God intends. And so he, he lays this vision for our life out. And then, 
<coughs> excuse me, in verses 4 through 13, he gives us a context, and this is really good and was good, and I hope it was good for you, and you can go back and read it, but for understanding and benefiting from our pain, our suffering, our hardship in life, because we're going to all meet that, and we do. Uh, and he gives us a context for understanding it and benefiting from it because he loves us. And then, starting in verse 14 on, he begins to list these priorities for us. These priorities that we're to pursue, we're to make every effort toward pursuing. We are to see to it that we fulfill them so that we live this life God intends for us to live. God intends us to live a blessed life. And so, Paul is calling us to clarity. You've got to be clear the target you're going to hit if you ever want to hit it. You've got to be looking at it, right? Because you're going you're to hit the target you're looking at. And so he wants us to be clear. He wants us to be focused on it. He wants there to be no grayness or waffling about it because he doesn't want us to get seduced or swindled out of God's lifelong gifts for some short-term illusion or short-term promise of satisfaction that we know does not last and is a complete rip-off. And so he doesn't want us getting seduced by those things, swindled. We have these priorities. Man, we need to follow them because they're for our benefit. So think about it again. What of great value have you ever given up to satisfy a temporary or momentary appetite or need? We've all done it. But what great gift have you given just to get that appetite satisfied? And then it didn't, it wasn't enough, wasn't it? Good news is, you and I don't have to be swindled again. We don't have to go down that path. There's a different path to go down. So if you've got a Bible, I want you to open it again to Hebrews 12, and let's read verses 16 through 17. Hear God's word, amen? Paul says, see that no one is sexually immoral. See to it. Or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance and his inheritance right, his inheritance right as the oldest son. Maybe you know that story, maybe you don't. We'll talk about it. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, that means the, the oldest brother writes, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. He couldn't change what he had done. He had sold it. He gave it up. And it says, don't we like that? So we've got a couple things there in this passage. Don't be sexually immoral, and don't sell your birthright for just a bowl of comfort food. Man, I'm a lover of comfort food, like, just like the rest of you. But don't do it, it says. Don't give up something great and lifelong for something momentary. Amen. Well, this is the first thing we have to do if we're going to stay on that path, and we're not going to make a bad trade. We're not going to exchange a long-term life blessing and gift for something that doesn't satisfy, and that's going to keep us from being swindled into doing that and making that trade. And here's the first thing. We have to really correctly define 
sexual immorality in our minds. Correctly define sexual immorality. There is a difference. There is, there is being sexually moral, and then there is sexual immorality. And the two things are completely different. Now, as I begin to talk about absolutes, where does it make sense to go? You've got to go back to the person who is absolute. You've got to go back to the creator, don't you? Because the creator knows. He knows how he made you. He knows how you're supposed to function and work. He's your creator. So obviously, he has the authority, right? Or else I'm going to pin my authority on something else. Am I going to pin my authority on Kelly's opinion? Well, yeah, you guys can do that. I, I wouldn't mind that. That would make life easy for me sometimes. But no, because Kelly's only lived on this planet a short 58 years. So you don't want to trust him. That's a joke for some people who know my age. Okay. I'm not 58. <laughs> I know I don't even look it. So, anyways. Amen? You've got to go back. You've got to go back. And you have to correctly define sexual immorality. And, and the thing is, because we don't, we aren't clear about sexual immorality, <coughs> we, we treat our sexuality like Elaine Bennis in Seinfeld treated a piece of $30,000 cake that she found in her boss's refrigerator. Do you guys know Seinfeld at all, that movie? Yeah. Elaine was used to get to the sugar rush. Her appetites wanted sugar at about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Mine used to be like 2.30 to 3. I'd always go looking for something about that time. But Elaine, it was 4 o'clock because her appetites had been trained by having so many celebrations in the office around that time. And so she's looking for sugar. She's looking for a fix. And she is hungry. She's not hungry. She's just, it's her habit. It's her emotion. It's her thoughts. It's her way of being, right? And so she goes looking. Well, she runs into her boss's office <coughs> because she was high enough on the totem pole to be able to do that opens his fridge, and she finds a piece of cake. Oh, my gosh, bingo! You know, it's wonderful when you're hunting for something and you actually find something, and it looks good. But she has no idea what that cake's about. And so you know what you do when you find cake or pie in the refrigerator, right? What do you do? Well, if it's somebody else's, you treat it in a certain way. Or if your wife or spouse has said, you can't have that, don't eat any, you treat it the same way. What do you do? You take that piece of cake and you cut a sliver cleanly off, don't you? Come on, are you guys not very schooled in that? I think we all are, because boy, I'm pretty schooled. I have, <laughs> I have some pretty mad uh, and bad uh, habits and skills in that area, don't I, Jake? So uh, I'm having to give them up and I've repented of them, and I've had to accept some things, so I've had to do that. But you sliver it off, and then you eat it, right? Because then it doesn't look like anybody's touched it. If you just did it once, it'd be okay. But do you do it once? No! You don't do it once, because you go away and go, oh, that was good, that was good, I'm not gonna have any more, and then you go, oh, dude, they're not gonna notice one more sliver, I'm coming back. And you do it again. But this time, you get a little more aggressive, and you begin to notch into it. 
So now you've got to cut a bigger piece off of it. And you know how, <coughs> excuse me, how the story goes. Before you're done, you eat the whole cake. Raise your hand if you've ever done that. Come on. Oh, I love how it's usually guys. Well, there we go. We've got some women that do that. Yeah, see? You eat the whole thing. I've done that more times than I can tell you. And then, have you ever gone and bought it to replace it? <laughs> See, you're not quite as advanced as I am in that. Oh, definitely. I have replaced things at least once, sometimes twice. I know it sounds sad and you laugh about it, and it's funny, but it's not good. And it hasn't benefited me, so I've had to repent of that and change, right? But that's what Elaine did. She kept slivering it off, eating it, eating until she ate the whole thing. Then she's setting, and guess what she finds out? She finds out that Peterman, her boss, had gone to an auction and bought a piece, a piece of cake that was very valuable because it was from the wedding, the 1937 wedding of the Dutch and Duchesses of Windsor. Loyalty. And he was having a person come in that afternoon to appraise it because he spent $29,000 on that piece of cake. It was 60 years old. And so she's panicked. Oh, my gosh, what do I do? So what does she do? Make a long story short, she runs down and gets a piece of Edmund. Edmund, is that how you say it? You've had it, right? It's kind of a cool cake. It's horrible for you, but it tastes great. And she buys a piece of it, and she takes it, and she puts it in place, and she thinks no one's going to know any different. And no one does know any different until the appraiser comes and informs Peterman that his cake is worth 219. And he goes, 219? He goes, I mean, two million and nine dollars? No, 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 two dollars and 19 cents because it's a piece of Edmund's cake that you can get at any supermarket. Oh, and he's upset. What? Oh my gosh, what? How'd this happen? And as he looks back into his surveillance tape, he sees Elaine delivering it off and dancing while she's eating the cake, just enjoying herself. And then he thought, man, I really should give her the hammer. And then he thought, oh, but that 60-year-old stale cake is probably going to be punishment enough, <laughs> right? Once it hits, once it hits. No, I would have charged her more. But see, we do that, don't we? We do that when we don't correctly define our sexual what sexual immorality is or what's moral and what is immoral, we treat sex flippantly, don't we? Our sexuality is very wonderful. I'm here to tell you it's very valuable and it's very powerful and it's a lifelong gift that we each possess. Man, and we each can be susceptible, though, of using and giving our gifts and trying to use other people's gift outside of a good and godly boundary, right? And we do that because we have appetites, not just needs. And we do it because it's sweet, it's exciting, it's deep, it's powerful, and it's addictive quality about it. It captivates us. Because what other experience do you have where it involves every sense that you have? Your smell, 
your, your sense of sight, your sense of hearing, your sense of touch. All, I mean, and then go to the deepest part of you because your heart and your soul open to another person. See, it's so deep, it imprints. And the drives can be tremendous. And they can be very powerful. But we can also use them in very nonchalant ways when it's such a wonderful, great gift that God, our creator, gave us. He gave us this gift because he loves us. So the charge in this verse, it's geared specifically toward our sin nature and our sexual nature. As believers, we're to abstain from sexual sin because it's God's will that we be holy. That's what 1 Thessalonians 4.3 and 1 Peter 1.16 tell us. So to be sexually immoral, according to Scripture, this is what it says. It's to view and it's to use sex in a way that is corrupt. It's, it's not the way it was intended. It's dishonest. Oh, come on, right? It is. It's out of bounds from the way it was intended to be used by our Creator. It is selling off of our sexual purity and it involves sexual expression outside of the biblical defined relationship of marriage. That's sexual immorality. It's a great gift. But we can use it wrong. And why is sexual purity, again, so important in the Bible and to God? Well, I'm here to tell you something. The reason it's important is because we're given this powerful avenue to know another human sexually so that we might have a hint of what it's like to know God Almighty completely. That's why it's given. We're given that gift so we can have a glimpse. All misuses of our sexuality distort the truth about our relationship with God. They do. And God intends for human sexual, sexual life to be a pointer, to be a foretaste of the purity and pleasure of knowing him. That's what he's calling us to. And, and it's not like, I know, you know, we're not being bizarre, like we're going to have sex with God, okay? The Bible says that when we're in heaven, we're neither going to be given or taken in marriage. There'll be certain things that will be different because we will fully know as we are fully known. You know, it's, it's about, at, at its, at its most foundational place. Sex is about knowing another person and loving them and experiencing them and they experiencing you. It's about fellowship. It's so much deeper than just a quick thrill. Right? It's so much deeper. So much deeper. So we're giving this as a foretaste. Therefore, things that are outside of bounds according to God's word, like adultery, which is having sex outside of marriage, premarital sex, which is also before you're married, incest, we all know what that means, homosexuality, we do too, we know what that means, and pornography. They're all misuses of our sexuality. They're all distortions about us. They're all distortions about other people. And, and God, and they're all distortions about God. And they swindle us they swindle us out of the gift of sexuality and our future blessing. They do. 
the consequences of sexual immorality are harsh. And, and many of us have experienced them. We live in shame and fear that others are going to find out what we've done. Uh, if we're married and we violate our vows, it shatters the trust between us, and it's hard, extremely hard to rebuild that trust again. The effects of that sin reach to husband and wife and children, even to extended family members. It affects the community. It does. Wow. Paul wrote this. He says about it in 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20. That's why he, he told the Corinthian believers, flee from sexual immorality. That means flee, run from it. Don't dance with it. Don't, don't mess with it. Don't toy with it. Run from it. Don't crawl from it, which is what we sometimes do as believers. All other sins, he says, a man or a woman commits are outside their body. But he who sins sexually sins against his own body. You can read that up on the board, right? Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Hmm. Jesus died to forgive you. And when you accepted him, he came to live within you. There's union. There's a deep inner union. Do you see that? That mirrors that deep intimacy and sexuality. He's in you. You were bought at a price. His price of love, he had to die. Therefore, it says, honor God with your body. And the reason we're to do that is because these sins are against our bodies. And because he who is united has united himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. You're now one with Jesus. You're now one with Christ. I can remember that when I first came to the Lord uh, and Jesus saved me, and I came from a non-Christian family, I walked into my bedroom. Every, every wall of my bedroom was plastered with pen art. Everywhere. Because in our family, that's what young men did. They, sold their, they sewed their oats. That's what, that, you, know, you didn't talk about sex. You never, got, you never learned about how to really do sex or have sex or love another person. You, but you, you certainly did all of these things. And I went through my room and I ripped everything down. I got rid of everything that was connected with that life and that way of living and that way of seeing women. I'm sorry. I had to repent from the justifying women. But in my family, they didn't see that as, as just being male. The women didn't see it as a problem and the men didn't see it as a problem. But it was a problem. It was a problem, and it was sexual immorality, along with everything else that goes along with it. And I remember cleaning out my life and said, I've repented. I will no longer walk as I walked. I will no longer be as I was, because I've been bought with a price. And I'm going to honor God with my body. And I'm going to honor other people, their sexuality as well as my sexuality, like I never did before. Wow. Can God forgive sexual sin and sexual immorality? You bet he can. He can forgive it. In fact, the gospel has recordings of it. many people that were forgiven of their sexual sin. 
And um, <coughs> many women who were in bondage because of it and were in sexual shame were delivered and healed and forgiven in his name and came to follow him. He set them free. I know he can. I know he does. And then he can make you right. But we have to be able to honestly declare to ourselves, what's the correct definition of sexual immorality? Am I sexually immoral? I need to take no thought. I can't dance around that. I can't put a stumbling block in the way of other people. I've got to get rid of all these things that are drawing me back into sexual immorality. I've got to flee it. So does that mean something? It meant for me, I had to listen to different music. I did. I had to watch different movies. In certain movies, I had to put a thing to say, no, you cannot watch that. I won't even tell you. There are certain movies you'd look now and you'd go, oh, those are, man, those are no biggie. But they were not. They were a biggie to me because they were a switch for me. So I couldn't watch them when I was young. And, and I don't, I'm careful what I watch now. Even though sometimes some of the movies you get caught and you go, oh my gosh. But I'm in a different place than I once was. But there are certain things that have to go. Because I know what sexual immorality is now. Certain things I can't entertain. Certain thoughts I can't, I can't allow myself to daydream on or to, to be a part of. There are, there are places we need to repent. And we want to see to it. And the Bible says see to it that no one is sexually immoral. You know what it means? I, I've got to also support my brothers and sisters. Because we're in a community. Right? So I've got to be careful what I do. I've got to support them. I still remember the first time I whipped off my shirt uh, after church service was over as a young uh, high school guy in the summer in California and uh, getting ready to play volleyball right out there while people were coming out of the nursery and coming out of Sunday school and coming out of the church service. And my youth leader gal came over and she said, oh, Kelly, put that shirt back on. You know, that's not really appropriate here. And, and, and that may end up having, you know, making trouble for some people. And I thought, hmm. But she was just telling me, be sensitive to how you influence other people. So I put my shirt back on. I also used to mow the lawn in shorts and no shirt and all that kind of stuff. And I was told, well, just wear a tank top. You know, I, I'm grateful for those people who talk to me about that, caring about other people. I had a boss in a gym. Guys work out, we're muscle heads. I, I worked at that gym. But you know, in that gym, he told women right off the bat, he says, look, if you're going to come here, I'm just going to tell you. You're going to have to wear a t-shirt, and you're going to have to wear sweats. And I'm sorry, because this is a gym with a lot of muscle-head young men. And men will treat you with more honor and respect if you do that. Because they're not all mature enough to do it otherwise. And we just want you to do that so that you make it easy on them. You know, some people are going to go, oh, that's being prudish. Oh, that's being this. Hey, it was helpful. You ever been on some of those machines? Right? <laughs> and, and, and with a bunch of young men around, yeah, it doesn't become a wholesome, wholesome place. It, 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 you lose your wholesomeness real quick. And, and I was thankful for that. 
what is immoral, what is moral. And we've been called to be moral. We've been called not to trade one of our greatest gifts away for just a little moment of satisfaction. Not good. Well, as we move on, verse 2 of this passage, the second verse, it shows us that we've got to follow the numerous godly examples of faith. That's what we have to pin our life upon. We don't follow the one bad example who's, who's pointed out in this situation. Because in chapter 11, we were given numerous examples of people of faith. Don't follow the one bad example. Genesis 25 tells us the story that made Esau the one bad example and, and were warned not to follow. So if you've got a Bible, I want you to read it. I don't have to turn to it because I've got it here. But it starts in verse 29 of Genesis 25, and it says this. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, and Jacob was Esau's brother, and, and they were both sons of Isaac, okay? Esau came in from the open country, and he was famished. <coughs> that meant he was starving. Uh, that's, and, 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 and so he said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. So you can tell that Esau is a passionate guy. He's rough and ready. He wants to eat. He's hungry. And he probably was hungry. But he probably also had an appetite for the stew. And that is why it says he was called Edom. Jacob replied, first sell me your birthright. His brother had set him up. He knew he went out to hunt. He cooked, and he had a plan. I'm going to take his birthright because he is just a passionate guy who jumps first before he looks, who's willing, if pushed right, to give up even his greatest gift for just a moment of satisfaction and comfort. And so Jacob cooks the right meal for him. And he says, for sell me your birthright. And then Esau replies, look, I'm about to die. Was Esau going to die? Come on. He's exaggerating. He's not going to die. He's going to be okay. But isn't that how you feel sometimes uh, when you have appetites that aren't fulfilled? If I don't do this, if I don't get this, I'm going to die. <coughs> You're not going to die. See, you, you need to understand that. It's not a need. It's an appetite. You're going to live. You can go three days without food. Oh, you can go longer. You can go three weeks without food. You know, it's, you're, you're not going to die. But he thought he was going to die. Then he said, Esau said, what good is the birthright to me if I die? What good is it? But Jacob said, swear it to me first. I love that. That's how brothers work with each other. They know how to manipulate. So he swore an oath to him, Jacob, or Esau did, selling his birthright to Jacob. And then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil <coughs> stew. Wow. I never would have got anything from my sons for giving them lentil stew. You know? But that worked with Esau. Wow. He ate, it says, and he drank. And then he got up and he left. So Esau despised his birthright. He held it in contempt. That was powerful. That was powerful. Do you know what a birthright gave them? 
back then, that meant that you were going to get double of the inheritance when your father passed. You would get twice as much, if not more, than all the other brothers or people in the family. You would also give the right to be able to lead the family. <coughs> you can call the shots. You can guide it. You were in charge. You know what else you got? You got to, you got to perform uh, the rites of priesthood in the temple or in the tabernacle. You got a special place of service as well. It was important to have your birthright. The firstborn birthright was worth a lot. But Esau's decision to sell his birthright is used as an illustration of ungodliness. A godless person who puts immediate worldly and fleshly attractions and desires and appetites over and above future earthly blessings as well as eternal spiritual blessings. Wow, why would you do that? But we do that. This person will trade away God's lifelong and eternal gifts in order to satisfy an immediate or short-term appetite. Why would we do that? But he did that. All to their loss. People will do that. Think about it. Where do you make a bad trade like this in your life? Where are you making bad trades like this? Think about all that God has promised you and me. Even as you look back in Hebrews 11. And all that we will receive later. <coughs> Think about that. No matter what sin or the devil promises us, long-term loss for short-term gain is always a bad deal. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. It's much more important than us spending four bucks for a cookie that we could make for 50 cents and have more and better. You know, that is a problem, but that's not that big of a deal. But when we trade away other things that are bigger deals for short-term satisfaction, some of us, we trade work and career and income. And what do we do? We exchange time with our kids our spouse, because you're only going to get the first 10 years with your kids once. And that's the most important time in their lives. But you trade that away to work and to make money, and you're never there. That story is old as time. But we make trades like that. We make trades all the time like that. Where are you making bad trades? The Bible says, stop. You might make them in the area of sexuality. You might make them in the area of time. You might make them in the area of priorities in life. We only go around in this life once, and after that, we're going to face the Lord and be in heaven. We only have so many opportunities. We've got to take them while we have them. We only have so many opportunities to be with loved ones. We only have so many opportunities to live by faith. Do you realize you won't be living by faith when you go to heaven? Because you're going to live by sight. So now's the time to live by faith and to trust the Lord. Now's the time to do his will and accomplish his mission. Because you're going to wake up in a blink and you're going to be like me, almost 62. What happened? I was just 20 yesterday. You know, what happened? And it goes so fast. And we don't want to make bad trades. So whatever the devil's tempting you with, whatever, 
the world's tempting you with or your flesh is tempting you with. Don't make a bad deal. Once more, this is what's wild about the story with Esau and Jacob. Nobody took Esau's birthright or blessing. Did you realize that? No one took it. He actually freely gave it by choice. No one took it. He offered it. He gave it. He forfeited it. Huh. Wow. So why do we have to follow one bad example again that's noted in Scripture here in chapter 12? Why do we have to do that when we have numerous great godly examples in Hebrews chapter 11? We're told to keep our eyes fixed on these godly examples. We're told to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We're told to keep our eyes focused so that God's blessings and gifts will meet our needs and our wants over the long haul. It's so much better. I can remember when some of my kids were like going, once they were married, they go, golly, didn't realize how the world lied so much about sex. It's just not like that. I go, well, yeah, no duh. Of course they lie. Every movie you watch, I'm, see, I'm going to keep from ragging on certain things and certain TV shows because I want to, but I'm going to keep from it. But you think of them. They don't tell you the truth. It's just television. It's just movies. I mean, let me tell you something. If, if when a gun is shot and a person goes flying back, that doesn't happen in real life, does it, Ron? People don't fly back and hit walls. It doesn't happen. You know, neither can you run around and have sex with every living person and you have absolutely no consequences and life is good. Man, that's the life to live. And everybody wants it. Everybody's happy about it. And it's the greatest thing on earth. Well, uh, no. I hope I didn't burst anybody's bubbles because it's no. The best sex that happens happens with people who pray together. That's what studies show. The best sex that happens happens with people who are in a committed, lifelong relationship and marriage with one another. I'm telling you what, somebody say amen to that. Come on! You don't say amen to that? Do I need to have discussions? Men, let's meet afterwards. Let's talk about it. Women, Jody, you grab the women, I'll grab the guys. Because I'm telling you, that's the way it is. That's the way it is when your heart is free. And you're forgiven when you're honest and open. When you love each other. Man, don't give that up. And if you've given it up, come to the Lord in repentance and ask him to forgive you and heal you. And he can. And he will. He will. He will. And he'll restore what the locusts have eaten. He will make you new again. So let's not be impulsive in our lives about trading lifelong or eternal gifts to satisfy temporary appetites. Let's not do that. And let's not allow anyone around us to do that. Amen? Let's hold on to those gifts. I want you to stand with me as we close in prayer. What you feed your mind will determine your appetites most times. What you feed your mind will determine your appetites 
what's so important is for us to accept what our Creator says to us about our sexuality and our life. And it will change our appetites. It will. And we don't want to let our current appetite steal away any chance of having a future feast. <coughs> I didn't say that first. Jim Rowe said that, and it's a great statement. Because God has a feast in store for you and me. So let's start walking in the Spirit. Let's not be impulsive. Let's not step into Satan's trap for our flesh. But let's keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just ask you, Father, to equip us through your word today and continue to keep us in your word. It is a light to our feet and a lamp to our path so that we are insulated from being scammed, from being swindled, from being conned out of our greatest gifts. Father, I pray this morning that if there's anyone here who is, is held in sexual sin of some sort or is under the burden of shame for, for sexual sin that they have committed, God, I ask in the name of Jesus that you would give them the courage and faith to repent today, to confess that to you, Lord, um, and to find your forgiveness that you so readily want to give. We thank you that you are faithful and just when we confess our sins to forgive us of all unrighteousness and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we receive that according to your promise in your word. And we just bless you and praise you for that. God, help us, Lord, to have a new mindset, to hold on to our, our lifelong gifts and uh, to nurture them and to develop them and uh, to give them your way, and that we would never trade them for a moment of satisfaction. God, bless us, we pray, and make us the people you've called us to be, and uh, keep us on that road and path of blessing that you intend for us. And we just thank you that it's for our good that you have placed us on that path. So this is all in Jesus' name we pray. And we just receive your blessing this morning. And we all said together, amen. amen. God bless you. God bless you. Keep talking about this with other people, with your spouse, with your family. Uh, talk about some of these things. Because the evil one loves to work when we don't talk about these things. And find healing, find blessing from the Lord. Also, next week we got a, we got a, a work day. You're welcome to come back and take a look at the sheet. Write your name down where you'd like to work, but we'd love to have you come out and help us get some things finished, um, and uh, got a number of things, so please do that. If you haven't signed up to help with the uh, Children's or Families Fall Festival, it's going to be great. It's always great. Uh, sign up and be a part and see Sarah this morning. I think that's it, huh? Lord bless you. Have a great Sunday.